You are listening to First Inhuman, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co-founder, with episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays. For episode 33, we connect with Aaron Morris, co-founder and CEO at Postera. Find out what the difficult process of drug discovery may look like in the future and how Postera is looking to drastically speed it up through the application of AI. Aaron, thank you for joining us on First in Human. Hey, Simon. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started in this crazy field and how did it all come together about joining and starting Postera? Sure. Yeah, I have very, very unorthodox background. I come from a, a mathematics and then eventually machine learning background. I finished my postdoc studies at the University of Oxford in the UK, where I met actually one of the co-founders, future co-founders of Postera, Dr. Alpha Lee. We became good friends and uh, he went off into uh, the academic field for a good six, seven years, began researching AI and drug discovery. I actually went into the finance industry and I was applying machine learning as a trader on the stock market at an investment bank in London. And we decided after several years of just talking and catching up that there was a huge amount of excitement around the academic work that had come from his lab. And I felt that I would be able to help him commercialize what had begun as academic research. And so Posterior really formed at the end of 2019, building upon a lot of the years of work that was done at Cambridge University in the UK. Maybe let's go one click deeper. We'd love to hear about your machine learning platform, Proton. What's the novel approach you're taking and how is it different from the other approaches being taken to apply machine learning to distant chemistry? Sure. Yeah. I think the first thing you picked up on is that the technology itself, at least to date, has been very much squarely centered on medicinal chemistry as opposed to doing AI for biology, where you're trying to pick new targets or AI for clinical trial design. We've really tried to brand ourselves as the world leader in AI for chemistry. And I guess the real innovations, if you will, across a couple of fronts, firstly, there was a huge amount of frustration in the field around the early AI models that could generate ideas and generate molecules, but had very little, if any, practical consideration as to the necessary synthetic investment needed in order to make the molecule. And this is really important if you're going to accelerate drug discovery because synthesis is the biggest bottleneck. It is the longest period in the traditional medicinal chemistry cycle is just making the darn molecule in some lab around the world. And so Pursue was really the first company to... Uh, innovate not just on machine learning for designing molecules, trying to get optimal properties, trying to make sure that they were safe as well as efficacious, but also taking a very serious practical view of how to actually make molecules. And so the upshot being that really advertising ourselves as the first company to cover what is referred to as the design make test cycle of medicinal chemistry. So all three stages really driven by ML in a single unified approach. And certainly we felt that this would address some of the shortcomings that the earlier approaches to AI for chemistry adopted. Seems quite obvious that AI should actually propose molecules that are synthesizable. But oh, it's incredibly painful to get an algorithm to do that. And secondly, even if you can get an algorithm to dream something up that is theoretically synthesizable, what you need is the next step, which is not only how do I make it, but who is best placed to make it. And so huge amount of Proton over the last three and a bit years has been 
integrating the technology with all the world's major CROs. We have over six and a half billion molecules updated in our inventory every single month. We know the lead times of these CROs. We know the FedEx shipping times of each CRO, getting a very granular understanding of synthesis logistics and building block inventory and catalog availability is all the unsexy stuff that you need if you're going to really have a high-functioning synthesis-driven approach in MedChem. Let's talk about what maybe hasn't been so obvious. What were some of the surprising challenges, obstacles in building a startup? I hear building a startup isn't easy. What were the hard parts? No, apparently it takes a bit of effort. I would say there are two aspects that come to mind. The first I would assume is generic and applies to every startup found. And then maybe one that's more pertinent and specific to the industry that I'm in. Honestly, I think that culture is sadly this buzzword that gets thrown around on PowerPoints, but it's very real and very tangible. And if you get it wrong, it's very hard to undo it. And what you find as a founder is the culture of your company becomes an overflow of your own personality. And your own strengths and weaknesses become the strengths and weaknesses of the company. And it's almost looking in a mirror every day. And so a large part of what is difficult about a founder is admitting the flaws in your company are kind of a flaw in yourself and that you might need to change the way that you view the world and do things. I know that sounds very abstract and aloof, but I think that very real practical feedback mechanism that you get every day from clients, from investors, from scientific experiments, and from your employees becomes a very quick reflection on you as a person and how you're leading the company. Something that's difficult, that's challenging, it's humbling, something you try and get better at. The second that I certainly found difficult in the early days of posterior was converging on a business model. It's actually quite non-obvious what you do if you have an advanced technology platform of some form. You can package and sell it as software. You can try and offer a kind of tech-enabled services model. You can try and just go vertically integrate and be a player in the industry, or you can try a mix of the above. And so I spent a lot of time trying to learn from other people in the industry, other companies. And I'm super happy with where we ended up. But that was difficult in the early days. What is the business model here? You guys have done some interesting work in the COVID space. And then it looks very different, right? We have the preprint model, open science, just the general collaborative nature of COVID research looks quite different. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that experience and how do you think it applies or doesn't apply to the rest of the field? Yeah, that's a great question, Simon. So we launched a project called COVID Moonshot. And the idea behind COVID Moonshot was to take a preliminary fragment screen that had been done at Diamond Light Source in the UK. They actually published all the data on Twitter. And we quickly realized that actually, if you're going to take these early basic fragments, they're not even drugs, they're fragments of a potential drug, and you want to actually develop an antiviral cure for patients, Synthesis is going to be really important here because you need to be able to merge these fragments together, synthesis, in a way that is fast and reliable and iterative. So what we did was we invited anybody and everyone to submit ideas for how to merge these fragments and then use posterior's ML to design the synthetic routes to score the molecules and then get them made. And I don't know, we thought maybe 20, 30 people might visit our little website. We were three months old as a company. Anyway, it blew up quite exponentially. We had over 400 scientists contribute about 20,000 different design ideas. And we chose to keep everything in the open. And we wanted to do that firstly for speed. We didn't have time to find lawyers and put IP patents and set up a whole 
clinical strategy. Honestly, at the time, it was just, we need to keep moving fast. And at worst, we have valuable data that is in the public domain that we hope can help other people. There are actual drugs in clinical trials now that reference the COVID moonshot data as their source of inspiration for some of their compounds. And thirdly, we thought, well, the majority of the developing world is unlikely to get access to vaccines as early as the more rich, wealthy Western nations. And these nations need a line of defense against COVID and antivirals is the best they're going to get. You don't have the cold supply chain constraints. You have a readily available pill. And if we do it open source, we don't have investors demanding a huge ROI. And so we can do it cheap. We can provide an accessible antiviral for nations that are unlikely to get access to vaccines soon. And that was the motivation. And yes, that project went unbelievably well, unbelievably quickly from just this fragment screen to a development candidate in about 18 months. It's now going through IND enabling studies and we'll start phase one trials as what we believe the world's first ever crowdsourced drug, which is incredibly exciting. In terms of your second question, I take a bit more of a sober view that this approach could be used for any and every disease. I think there are certainly areas you imagine underserved research areas where Often the economic incentive isn't strong enough to pull R&D into that space. Think antibiotics, for example. I think some of what we learned from the open source model could well be applied in that area. I would say, though, that we had this unique moment in time where scientists around the world just couldn't go to work or operate their labs, and they were looking for something to do. And an open science project was a good use of their time. I'm not sure if you decided tomorrow, hey guys, let's crowdsource a drug for Parkinson's, that you might get that same global focus, the same level of just charitable donations, like companies devoting assays and synthesis resources to us for free at the speed and the pace that we did. So I hope we can benefit the broader community. I think there is still huge value in open science, particularly as it pertains to putting data in the public domain. If only we had that data from SARS-CoV-1, we could have moved faster on SARS-CoV-2. But I, I want to be sober, and I don't think it's a silver bullet for every disease. Let's talk about the projects you guys have ongoing. You have a series of projects, really quite remarkable speed that you've been moving things forward and seemingly moving things towards the clinic at a rapid pace. Tell us more about some of the projects ongoing, and you partnered with Pfizer. Tell us more about the experience working with the big pharma company. So I guess we have almost three prongs of drug discovery we're doing. There's the kind of open science COVID moonshot work, which is fantastic. Obviously, there's no economic benefit for posterior, but it's a great social good. And we're very enthusiastic and committed to that. Uh, the actual US government just gave us and a couple of our collaborators a, a 68 million grant to continue this work for other viruses. So there's that open science virology part of what we do as a company. Then, as you've mentioned, there are the partnership-based approaches. So Pfizer really selected Posterior as the kind of leader in AI for chemistry and their primary partner about three years ago. And we've now done one academic partnership and now two commercial partnerships with them, the latest of which is called an AI lab. And it sounds quite grand, but the point is that the sandbox approach will be set up within Pfizer to really test if AI can move the needle. So Pfizer are effectively asking Posterior to work on certain programs and certain targets. 
And we use our Proton platform to really drive those programs forward. And though it's difficult, obviously, to disclose a huge amount, certainly the most recent projects that we've done have gone very, very successful and and actually up to the kind of board level of Pfizer. And so really for us, it's been a fantastic case of being able to show the, the speed and improvement that an AI approach can bring. I do want to say we've actually learned a huge amount from Pfizer in the process, and I'm really glad that we've done these partnerships, not so we can come up with a nice case study or a PR release, but there's huge value working with scientists who've got 25, 30 years experience in the field, and we're able to take those learnings and put them hopefully into a more machine-readable format. So the Pfizer partnerships are exciting. There'll hopefully be other partnerships announced very shortly. And then the third angle is our internal pipeline. And uh, that's a little bit newer. So we really kicked that off toward the end of last year, start of this year. Uh, We'll be disclosing the indications and the things we work on in the coming months. But again, here is an opportunity for Posterior to really drive programs end to end and to use Proton to move cures toward patients in disease areas that we care about as a company. I'd love to zoom out. You spend a lot of time thinking about the future. I would imagine the future of drug discovery. Where is the space going? All of these innovations are kind of being done in parallel. Once it all kind of gets wrapped in, what do you think drug discovery looks like in five or 10 years? Yeah, I think in five to 10 years, what we talk about at Posterior is not just what does science look like, but what does a scientist look like? And for me, when we're hiring these chemists and biologists and drug discovery folks, I advertise that AI, it's not going to replace your job entirely in the next five years, but scientists who can use AI will replace the jobs of the scientists who can't. And so to me, I really imagine Posterior being at the bleeding edge of creating the modern 21st century scientist where there is a seamless partnership between the scientists and the engineers working together, collaborating to build modern technology that drives drug discovery. I think there is so much within the traditional drug discovery paradigm that AI is going to take over. I think there are lots of aspects such as logistics, such as compound ordering, such as trying to identify the correct CRO to work with, changing certain aspects of a scaffold in order to fix an ADME issue. All of these things are approaches where we really believe in the next five years posterior can entirely drive by AI. I do think there are aspects in which humans will continue to be needed. And I ultimately want my chemists and my drug discovery team to become more strategic rather than more in the weeds and tactical. That is what I hope Proton can help with. And I don't think AI is going to get to a point in the next five years where it can say, okay, this is the target product profile. This is the killer experiment. Here's an orthogonal assay that we should run for verification. Here's a portfolio view of the posterior pipeline. Here's where we need to invest more money. Here's where we should slow down. I think that type of high-level strategic decision-making is something that I want my chemists and biologists to be free enough to be able to work on while the AI can handle the almost, I would say, grunt work of medicinal chemistry. So I think that's where the field is moving. And you're going to see AI applied across the entire field beyond what posterior is doing. So AI for biology, picking new targets, rather than necessarily having biologists just walking through hundreds and hundreds of papers trying to piece things together. 
trying to get AI to come up with coherent suggestions. And again, in the clinical trial, thinking about optimal patient recruitment and things. So I don't expect humans to be absent in this field in the next five to 10 years, but I think their role will look very different. A lot of computer scientists are now trying to get into tech bio, better understand machine learning and AI's impact on biology and how they can do something about it. Do you have any advice for anyone looking to get the field from your experience? Yeah, I'd advise a couple of things that I wouldn't advise textbooks. I don't think sitting and, and reading textbooks is the most constructive. I would say if you're in the ML space, you're sat here today listening to me and you're in Twitter or you're in meta or and you're thinking about using your talent in the field of healthcare and in medicine, there are plenty of open source data sets. And I encourage you to start using your ML and your CS skills on the open source chemistry and biology data sets and just play around and tinker and see where you can go, get used to the data, understand the challenges of that type of data. There's a bunch of fantastic blogs. I even post things now and again, if you really want to read those. And my second line of advice would be speak to practitioners, speak to the people working in the industry, try and see what are the fundamental differences in the tech biospace or in biotech in general, as opposed to fintech or as opposed to social media or whatever you've been using your other skills. And then the third thing that I recommend is to try internships, to take three months to jump in a company ideally a small one. So you get into the weeds as fast as possible and just see if you enjoy the work, see if you enjoy the people. Uh, I came from another industry and I am incredibly glad to be in biopharma. Now I find the mission and the people incredibly motivating, but uh, there's a high barrier. There's a lot of jargon. There's a very different domain to what people must be used to, but there are resources to help you get there. Sounds good. No textbooks, maybe a little bit of learning from Twitter, a little bit of learning from your blog posts. I like that. Cause you back. Uh, well, with that, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate the time. Pleasure. Thanks again, Simon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google. 